Nancy, appreciate that so very much. If you grab your Bibles, just join me in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews this evening. And we're going to embark on our new study here on Wednesday nights, and uh, we might be here a while. It's a little bit longer of a book. Uh, we're going to look to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter number one, if you'll look with me there. And uh, it is good to be here behind the pulpit. I will say this, I don't know how long I'll be able to stand up here tonight, so maybe the shortest message I've ever preached. But uh, we'll see. Nonetheless, I hope I can do so, and uh, not the leg hurting too much. I will, <laughs> I, I, this sounds silly and I said it, I think, on Sunday or last Wednesday or whenever, the tip of my tongue is still numb. And uh, <laughs> so I'm still messing up saying things and so forth, and that's from the anesthetic. It is getting a little bit better. But, and uh, so if I say something funny, you'll know why. There's a reason, okay, other than my normal craziness. But anyway, nonetheless, I'm uh, looking forward to tonight. I'm looking forward to this study. And, uh, boy, I've been praying about this for a long time, and the Lord just uh, kind of uh, shoved it to the back burner a couple times along the way. It, it, it's a little daunting. It's intimidating of a book. And uh, the book of Hebrews here. So what I want to do is I want to start by reading Hebrews chapter 1. We'll read just the first four verses and to just kind of get a taste because uh, this is one of those books that get, hits, it, it hits it right from the get-go, okay? There's not much uh, build-up. There's not much introduction, anything like that. It just kind of goes at it. And so let's get a little bit of a taste for the book of Hebrews. Verse number 1, we'll read down through verse number 4. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, in upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance attained a more excellent name than they. Now, it is likely that many of us have read through the, the book of Hebrews. Maybe one of those times we're reading uh, for uh, chronologically or we're reading through the Bible in a year, whatever the case may be. You, you've probably found, as I, it is a book that is rich in truth. Uh, next to Romans, I would say it's one of the more doctrinal books we have here in the New Testament. And uh, it really teaches us much about it. Uh, yet at the same time, if you remember it well, uh, it is a little difficult to understand at points. Uh, there is a, a, an author, a commentator, a, a theologian of old, William Barclay. Um, he, he, he made this description of it. He said the most difficult book in the New Testament for today's Bible student is the book of Hebrews. And you say, Pastor Henry, that's a terrible way to begin a series on Hebrews. Uh, here's a theologian here. Somebody said, hey, it's, it's probably the most difficult in the entirety of the New Testament. Why do you start there? Well, there's some truth to that because it is a book that is heavily dependent upon our understanding of Judaism, of the Jewish faith, it, our understanding of sacrifices, of the, the temple, of the rituals, of the things that transpired back in the Old Testament and, and the traditions and so forth. In fact, one Old Testament professor made this statement. He said, you will never understand Hebrews until you understand Leviticus. Some of you right now say, I'm done. <laughs> and I ought to give up because I don't understand Leviticus when I read that, when I study the book of Leviticus. Oh, well, let me encourage you. The reality is you don't fully have to understand the book of Leviticus uh, to grasp Hebrews. In fact, the fact, I think it's kind of opposite. When we study Hebrews, we'll learn more about Leviticus and those rituals and the sacrifices and the temple and so forth from the pages here of this wonderful letter. In turn, in a sense, it will shed light on Leviticus. I like how one author put it. He, he made this statement. In, in the book of Leviticus, Hebrews is there but concealed. 
in Hebrews, we find Leviticus, and Leviticus is revealed. I love that statement because what it tells us is this. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's a constant theme, and God is building up towards it. And as we come to the end of the New Testament, God has made things pretty much perfectly plain and clear of who Jesus Christ is, his redemption plan, and even towards looking towards Revelation, the end of all time, and of the ages, that is. And he's kind of shed some light on it. He's made some things clear here, and I think Hebrews looks back, and we're like, ah, I understand now why God had Israel do that, why that sacrifice was like that, why the high priest did that, why, why the temple was ordered and like that. Hebrews does a lot to shed the light looking backward. And though William Barclay, he, he did say that it is the hardest book to understand, notice what else he said. He quickly added to that this statement, there's no book in the New Testament more worth the effort to understand. And I think next to Romans, I, I, I concur 100%. I agree with that. I think Romans and Hebrews are two of the finest books we find in the New Testament for the, the Christian today for doctrinal truth and practical application of truth. I love practical application. I love being able to say, okay, here's the doctrine of God, and here's how that plays out, what that looks like in my life and your life on a daily basis. And as we get to the end of Hebrews, we find that be true. Uh, we find that the author sheds some light on that. I just encourage you as we embark on the study of the book of Hebrews, it is a fantastic study. It's going to be a treat. You and I will will grow immensely in our knowledge of Christ, of his truth, of Christ's doctrine. We'll grow immensely and personally. One of the things that Hebrews will do, my goodness, it will grow you personally as you get in these pages. As you study it and you allow it and you meditate on it and you allow it to affect you and change you, the book of Hebrews will have a huge effect in your personal growth. And then also... What you saw a moment ago, and I don't know if you had time to fill it in, but the theme of Hebrews, as we'll talk a little bit about tonight, is the supremacy, the supremacy and the superiority of our Savior. See, our study will help us to grow in our appreciation of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the author and finisher of our faith. And Hebrews is really written for that, to, to, to shed the light, to expose uh, his superiority, his supremacy uh, of that. And so that's the part of the title that maybe you didn't catch at the beginning there, the supremacy and superiority of our Savior, okay? So where do we start? Well, the first thing is we like to do in our Bible study, or our Bible studies here is say, okay, uh, who is the author, who is he writing to, and so forth. So we want to start with identifying the audience. Now, I also always want to put in a little bit of a precursor or a, a little bit of a um, uh, caveat to this, okay? Because the Bible's clear. All Scripture is given by God and is profitable, okay? So all Scripture is profitable. So Hebrews, though, by its very title, tells us what, who the primary main audience is. The reality is it is profitable for all of us. You know, Jesus Christ often described his audience in a certain way. When he was speaking, he was talking. Maybe he's talking to Jews, and maybe there's some Gentiles around. Maybe it was just his disciples, whoever it may have been. When he was preaching and talking to multitudes, one of the things he would often say was this. Those that have ears, let them hear. Okay? And, and he really described his audience in that way. Uh, literally, the idea, he that hath ears, let him hear. Okay? I could be very juvenile and say, okay, touch your ears. Okay, but we all have ears, right? We all have the ability to listen. And often God says, listen, who's the audience for this letter, this book, this message, this sermon? If you have ears, let them hear. Let them take it to heart. 
Let them learn from it. Let them grow thereby. And so uh, that is true here. If you can hear it, it is for you. If you can read it, it is for you. The author of this book makes it clear in chapter 3 and verse 7, if you wanted to glance ahead, he made this statement, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice. And that really is the, the, the need, isn't it? It really is for you and I to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to hear, I'm going to listen, I'm going to heed it, I'm going to do it and uh, put it into practice, whatever God says. But if I have ears to hear, I want to hear it, I want to listen. So in that sense, it's for all of us. But let's talk about the audience right now, okay? Roman numeral number one, you'll see it on your outline there, the audience of Hebrews, it's what I would call multifaceted. There's many aspects to it. It's a broadly uh, addressed letter. When we come to the Hebrews, it's like many other in the New Testament. Uh, it's broad in some sense. There's several different groups uh, to whom the letter is addressed and to whom can benefit from it. We'll identify three to four groups who are addressed by the letter. And, and you say, why is that so important? Because as we come to different parts, there are some difficult passages in Hebrews. You may have read through them, and there's some, there's some tough ones. There's some, some ones that we certainly, if the Holy Spirit read it, he is the best to help us with the interpretation and understanding of it. So we'll get to it. But can I tell you, in the book of Hebrews, there are different sections that are addressed to different audiences. And as you know to whom it is addressed, that helps your understanding of what is presented and why it is presented in the way, the method that it is presented. And Hebrews is very much like that. We'll see some examples of that tonight as we talk about some of the different audiences to whom it is addressed. Okay? And so it's crucial for us to understand it, grasp these different groups, different uh, specific facets to which the book is addressed. The first is this, letter A, you see it there, the saved Hebrews struggling with slipping back in the old ways. The saved Hebrews, the saved Jews, slipping back uh, or struggling with slipping back into the old way. This is the largest group. So we start with the largest, the, uh, the, the primary audience, if we might describe it as such. To, to whom would we say that uh, first and foremost the book of Hebrews is written? It's to the, the Jewish believers who are struggling with thinking back and going back over everything they came out of in Judaism. All the rituals, all the sacrifices, all the things they grew up with. And so um, you think about it, uh, these were folks that, uh, that were apparently converted to Christianity. Those old rituals and traditions were still a great lure and attraction. Why? Because they were Jews. If any religion has ever been identified with a group of people of ethnicity, it's certainly Judaism with the Jews. It kind of goes hand in hand with being uh, who they are. And you're Jew, okay, you, you believe in Judaism, and you follow the Jewish religion. And, and for many, many years, especially in that time, maybe not as much in Israel today, but reality is those things just went together. And so these folks are being saved from them. Now they're wrestling with everything their families are doing, everything they grew up doing. Paul himself would have been one like this. And so you see that. They, they would have felt the pull, the, the pressure from family and the culture to keep on doing those things. Remember Paul in Galatians, Paul in other places had to address this, this pull back to Judaism, this pull to legalism, this pull to good works and earning their way to salvation. And, and so uh, this letter, is very much addressed to them to help them to continue understanding that Christ came to what? Fulfill the law. He brought a new covenant. He brought a new testament. And I, I love it when we observe the Lord's Supper. He says, this is the new testament. 
It, it, it's done away with the old one. This is so much better. And, and that's literally what this treatise is, known as the book of Hebrews. It's showing and shedding light on, my goodness, Christ has come, and he has brought us all these great things. And, and Jew, don't, don't, get, don't get caught up in going back. Satan would love for you to slip back into your old ways and trying to earn your salvation, if we could put it this way. Yet many of these were on the cusp of confusion and chaos in their own lives. They were being lured back. And so this letter is to try to sound the warning. In fact, there's at least five different sections of warnings here in the book of Hebrews that we'll look at. And yet the problem is, and here, here's why, why, why was this necessary? Because the fact is many of them had not matured in the faith. They hadn't grown like they ought to. So here are Jews saved out of Judaism. They, they're Christians, but because they have not grown, as does happen with every person who is a believer and does not grow, what happens? The old life really lures you back, doesn't it? If you don't get grounded, if you don't get established, if you don't get rooted, if you don't get past the milk of God's word, then we're going to start having problems. And that's what Peter, or excuse me, what Hebrews addresses here. Look with me, if you will, Hebrews chapter number six. Turn over with me, or five, excuse me, Hebrews chapter number five. Look at verse 11. Notice Paul's statement here. He says this, Hebrews chapter five, verse 11. Of whom we have many things to say. Okay, and uh, speaking of Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He says, I want to say more to you. I want to share more. I want to expound more of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered. He tells us right now, you say, Pastor Henry, why is Hebrews hard? The author says it's hard here. It's hard to be uttered. Seeing ye are dull of hearing. Verse 12, for when ye, for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have one need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, the word of God, the truth of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. And he gives a little uh, principle for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, we spent a whole boatload of time in that passage when we talked about our series on discernment, and so it develops discernment. And that's what these folks were lacking, okay? So the Judaizers in Galatia uh, could come and say, oh, you still need to be circumcised. You still need all these things. You, you still need to keep this ritual and do this. And, and those new converts, because they had not grown. Oh, really? We got to do that? And now they're all confused, and there's some chaos coming in. And so this book is written to correct that, to address that, to really establish some doctrines and truth that does away with any pull, any attraction to old Judaism. And the rituals, whoops, and the rituals and things there that we see, okay? Um, if you'll look with me real quick, okay? Uh, there, there's an aspect about this. Let me go back to it since I went way far. There you go. This letter was written to give strength and growth to these floundering believers. The letter was written to give strength and growth to these floundering believers. It was literally uh, written so that they could be established and rooted once again. Do away with the pull and the attraction. I think John Phillips, he's a, a commentator, and um, he does a great job in describing what somebody like one of these saved Jews were in that day, what they would be like. Notice what he says, and he, gives a, he puts it kind of in story form, and that's, I think it's a beautiful way of putting it. Notice what he says. He says this. The trumpets of the temple sound long and loud, the daily summons to the evening sacrifice. 
And the priests performed their required washings, attired themselves in their gorgeous vestments, and set out for the house of God, which crowns the hill Moriah like a golden diadem, glittering and flashing in the sun. Again, the summons rings forth, and yet again for the third and last time, the officiating priests of the day hasten up the broad steps leading to the outer court. From all over Jerusalem, the people, the Levites, and the priests flock toward the temple as the surrounding hills echo back the trumpet sound. Through the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, they bustle through pillared cloisters, leading the stately, uh, to the stately dwellings of the priests and the temple's ministering officers. On they go toward the inner, of the, uh, inner or holy temple, looking with pride and admiration on the marble walls, the gold and silver gates, the gleaming gold ornaments of clustering grapes and pomegranates, the cedar roofs and splendid hangings of purple and scarlet, and the altars of rich incense that fill the air with fragrant perfumes. The sacrificing priest for the day approaches the altar, now surrounded by the the gathering crowd, and takes the appointed animal victim from the hands of the attending Levites. After slaying it in accordance with all the necessary instructions and forms, he presents it before the Lord. The fire burns and the smoke ascends while the sacrifice is consumed. Standing somewhere in the assembled crowd is a Jew, born of the tribe of Levi in the house of Aaron, Thus, by every right, a priest. But he has become a Christian. So the splendid temple and its gorgeous ritual, decreed by holy writ and by traditions, reaching back from century to century, is no longer for him. However, he gazes at it somewhat wistfully, feeling a tug on his heart. Although he knows that the temple and its functions are mere shadows and that the substance is Christ, the temple looks so real. The rituals speak with such authority that the shadow looks like the substance while the substance seems like the shadow. The epistle to the Hebrews was written for him. So can you imagine in that day a Jew growing up in Jerusalem? And and I haven't said much about it nor put it in today's message. But the reality is, when was it written? It was obviously written after the ascension of Christ. But it was also written before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So these Hebrews to which uh, this book is authored, those who are saved, those who uh, have put their faith and trust in Christ, they're still growing up. They're, They're living in a culture where everything surrounds the temple. Everything surrounds the synagogue. Their lives literally revolve around that and yet now that they are christians it no longer holds that spot so you can imagine the immense pressure for them by family by culture by those around them to 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 not turn their backs fully on that okay son you can you you can say you believe in christ that's fine but i don't want you to give up offering sacrifices i i don't want you to stop going through the rituals and the traditions could you imagine a parent would certainly do that You just keep that Jesus stuff to yourself. What you believe inside is fine, but you just keep going through the motions and there would be pressure for them to keep on doing that. So that is the primary audience to which this epistle is written. In fact, very much we would say it is the group of people that were struggling themselves with, oh boy, how do I live out this life? The second group would be a group of unsaved Hebrews struggling with putting their faith in Christ after being intellectually satisfied with who Christ is. There's an interesting component to the book of Hebrews. 
Yes, he's writing to Christian believers. There's no doubt that that is present primarily in the passage. But there's also a group that he addresses at times within the book of Hebrews that are unsafe Hebrews, Jews, that have seen the facts. They have witnessed the evidence. And in their minds, they are convinced of who Christ is, but they sadly stopped there. I can just imagine there's some who maybe read this letter and, and they've heard Paul before. They've maybe heard Peter. They've heard the other apostles. They've heard preachers. Maybe they've even been there and sat in on church services. And, and in their minds, they've accepted, yeah, that it's likely Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He does seem to fulfill all of the prophecies. And yet they have not taken the step of faith. And so we see passages and parts here um, really addressed to them. How would we describe them? We would describe them in this way. They were intellectually convinced, but spiritually uncommitted. Have you ever met somebody who says, yeah, I understand what the Bible says. I know who Christ is. I'm just not yet ready to trust him. Uh, they are intellectually convinced. They, they have admitted, yeah, I, I know what the Bible says, and I'm convinced that that's who it is, and he is who he says he is, but I'm not ready to put my personal faith and trust. Not ready to take that step of faith. Uh, though they might acknowledge that Christ is who the Bible says he is, they do not accept him as their personal Savior. And so there would be some Jews here like this. In fact, the author addresses such. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 2, would you? Hebrews chapter 2. And we're just giving you a sampling, uh, showing you where some of these audiences play out in this passage. Look at verse 1. This is a warning to those who hear but have not operated on hearing. Notice it. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Listen, at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by an angel was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received is just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We reject it. I, I don't want it. I, I, yeah, I believe it. I've heard it. I get the revelation, but I don't want it. Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. It was confirmed unto us by them that heard them. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will man a lot of great truth and can't get in tonight but you understand what he's saying listen hey the, we've had this presented to us you've been confronted with the evidence the facts it's been uh, confirmed by miracles and the acts of the holy ghost and yet you're neglecting so great a salvation that's sitting right here for you to take oh my goodness it is like a a person who believes there is a god but has not come to put their faith and trust in the god such it is with these hebrews there's some who say, yeah, I, I can see that. I can understand. Yeah, it's like Nicodemus and understanding something's different. I, I need that, but yet unwilling to put their faith and trust in them. Can I just tell you right now, we all know this to be true. That is a dangerous place to be. To be exposed to the revealed truth, to be convinced of its validity and reality that it is indeed true, and then reject Jesus Christ for what you know him to be. So this letter is written in part to those Jews. Knowing full well what lies ahead and the destruction. and the, uh, uh, There is much warning in this passage and in this book to those people. Listen, you, you need to trust Christ, the Messiah. That's why this book has many great warnings to the group, as I said. And 
I would also, I, I don't mean to bore you this evening, but I, I think John Phillips does again another masterful job in describing this person. He, he describes this person like that, much like the other one. He says this, in a house of an alley, a few blocks back from the massive wall of Jerusalem, resides another Jew. In his home, there's a prized possession, a copy of the books of Moses, of the prophets and of the Psalms. It has been in his family for years, and he knows most of it by heart. Lately, he has been reading it again. He is thinking things through that he's been confronted with. Can the blood of bulls and goats really take away sin, he asks himself. Of what value are all these rituals? Surely they must speak of something else. There must be a reality behind them all. And is it really Calvary? Can it be that the Christians are right after all? He opens one of the scrolls. And what of all the prophecies concerning the Messiah, he asks himself. Are not Christ have suffered? How else can Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Psalm 16 be explained? They pierced my hands and my feet, it says. That will not suffer the Holy One to see corruption. What can that mean but resurrection from the dead? And what then? Are the Christians correct when they say that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled such scriptures as these? That Jew struggling with being confronted with the truth. Now it goes on and he describes that person trusting Christ and all that they go through because of it. Notice what he says. He goes from scroll to scroll, finding in each one unexplained ceremonies, unsatisfied longings, in unfulfilled prophecies, deciding to stake everything on the despised and rejected Jesus of Nazareth, he becomes a Christian, makes his faith known, and is cut off from his people. His outraged parents disinherit them. They cast him out of the family and outside the camp. They even hold a funeral for him and consider him dead. His heart aches for his loved ones, for the close-knit family ties of the Jews. Missing the cheer and the comfort of home. Missing the rich ritual in which he has been reared. Missing the synagogue and its forms. He begins to wonder if he should go back. And then he falls into that first group we talked about. The epistle to the Hebrews was written for him. Could you imagine the struggle? Hence there were those in that day, the Jews, who, yeah, I think I, believe, I see it. That really answers. He meets all the prophecies. Jesus Christ fulfills them all. And, and yet, because of the pool of family, because of the pool of the culture, the people around him, the risk of your own family having a funeral for you before you're dead, refusing to put your faith and trust in them. So this book is written to that group as much as it is the first group. Though not the primary group, it is an important aspect. Now, there's another group to which we'll see that much of Hebrews is addressed. Number three, audience, third group of the audience, facet, would be the unsaved Hebrews struggling with Christ being the Messiah. Okay, this is another group of Jews in the audience. These are those who are unconvinced uh, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Maybe they haven't been exposed to the truth of the preaching of the gospel, of the reality of the messages that Peter and Paul have given. These are those Jews that didn't embrace Christ for who he is, the great sacrifice, the great high priest, the redeemer, the savior, the Messiah, the promised one, the instigator of this New Testament, as the New Testament puts it. Here is where the reasoning and the logic of this book come to the forefront. It is a plea to reason together. And I, you'll see this. I, uh, this is why, uh, not to jump ahead, but one of the reasons I really think that Paul wrote Hebrews. 
there's such logic in that lawyer-esque reasoning that we saw in Romans comes out here in Hebrews. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. You probably know it. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Okay? I love that passage and the reality. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white as wool. Okay? And that they shall be as wool. I love that thing. I love the beginning of it. It says, now, come now and let us reason together. Can I just tell you right now, the book of Hebrews is very much the same thing. The Holy Spirit is saying, come now, let us reason together. And I would put it this way. What is the, what, what is the Holy Spirit saying in this verse? So we'll kind of use Isaiah 118 and kind of word it similarly here for Hebrews. I'd say he's saying something to this effect. Come now, let us reason together. Though the covenants and the sacrifices of old were good, the Savior has come, the Messiah, has come and ushered in a better way, offering lasting salvation, a sacrifice once and for all for everyone, and is offering eternal, heavenly blessing. You see, this is a treatise. I I like how one author described Hebrews. It starts out as a treatise. It gets into a doctrinal book, and it ends in a letter. (laughs) And that is somewhat true if you read the entire letter or the entire book together. What he's saying, this treatise is really a plea. It's a challenge. Yes, for Jews of all kinds. Jews who are Christians, don't go back. Jews who are intellectually convinced, but have yet to put their faith and trust in him. You can trust him. And to Jews who have yet to embrace Jesus Christ for who he is, it is a plea. Come now, let's reason together. Those high priests of old could only do so much for you. Those sacrifices in that temple, they were only good for a short time. Could, do, could not take away your sin. Jesus Christ has come and has brought something much better. So there's a reasoning here throughout this book laid out to convince an appeal to the unbelieving and unconvinced Hebrews in that day. Jesus Christ to see him for who he was. Then obviously the audience, as all scripture, as we talked about a moment ago, uh, the fourth group, the fourth facet of the audience would be this. All Christians of every age. All Christians of every age. I made mention of it, and I'll say it again. The book is very beautiful in its logic. And in the fact that it is packed full of doctrine, there's deep truth to be found in every chapter. And that's what I love about it. We'll, we'll be here. There'll be some nights we take one verse and we go at it. Because it's deep truth found within it. But you know what is true of this book? Uh, the fact is this. All Christians, any Christian, can grow up on this book. As they study the book of Hebrews, it is something that as they study it, they abide in it. You and I, as we learn it, we can grow from infancy in childhood into mature adulthood. So there's this growth that can take place, spiritually speaking. And there's a call that is found throughout its pages. And, and uh, what, what do we find this call that we see here in Hebrews? And uh, it is very much a call to press towards um, perfection. That's literally what we see. We'll see it repeated, in fact, 14 times. Okay? 14 times uh, the word perfection or perfecting or perfect is found in Hebrews. And it's a call to uh, this idea of perfection, of, uh, of maturity, the full growth in spiritual things. And how do we do that? By means of the knowledge and power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who saves us, directs us, and intercedes for us. And so in case you haven't caught it yet, my friend, Hebrews is all about Jesus Christ. 
the supremacy, the superiority of him, and what that means for you and I. It's a great truth. As it is true, we, we ought to enter this study by joining the Greeks in John 12, 21. You remember they came to Philip? Philip took him to Andrew. You remember what they said? They said simply this, we would see Jesus. My friend, you cannot go wrong as you look into the book of Hebrews, as you open its pages, as we will do so on a Wednesday night, for you and I to just simple, simply say a prayer. All right, God, tonight, I want to see Jesus. Let me see him for all he is. Let me see him in all his superiority and supremacy. Let me see my Savior for all that he is and how great he is. And that's really what we see presented for us time in and time again. I love this book because it also connects the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament in, in many ways. It's going to help you and I as we study it to appreciate the Old Testament while also making us grateful for a better testament in Jesus Christ. Grateful for a better covenant now in Jesus Christ. And through it all, you know what the Holy Spirit does? It says what the author says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22. Let us draw near. As with any study, any scriptures, the fact is simply this. We are called to draw near unto Christ. And that's really the desire in what we are hoping to do so. Real quick, look at Roman number two. It won't take us long, so let's look at this. The author of Hebrews, multiplicity of opinions, okay? The author of Hebrews, multiplicity of opinions, okay? This is one of those letters in which the author is not identified. You can search through the pages. There's no uh, salutation at the end or in the beginning, whatever the case may be. No, no concluding statement that I, so-and-so, wrote this, all right? So we don't know for sure. I don't think anybody can say 100% sure who wrote the letter, other than the fact that we always come back to this reality, there's other books in the, in the Bible that we don't know the author of concretely. And we can have a guess concerning it. But the good news is, if it's in the Scriptures, we can always be sure that the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit. Okay? That men and women alike were led of the Holy Spirit to write down, to pen the Bible for us. And so we get that. Okay? Now, taking that a step further, I, I would join such men as uh, Schofield, Ironside, the translators of the King James Bible, and many others, in believing and holding to that Paul was most likely the human author of Hebrews. I believe there's some um, evidence towards this end. Okay? It, it's interesting. I, I, I've read more books than I probably ever wanted to on Hebrews and, uh, and using them in studying and things like that. And boy, you find a wide gamut. I've read articles and so forth by theologians of uh, different flavors and things like that, just uh, broadening my understanding of it, but also seeing what's out there. And uh, my goodness, you find people say, oh, it's written like Romans, so therefore it is Paul. It's funny, uh, the next article or the next book, it's not written anything like Romans, so it's not Paul. <laughs> and so it's funny how people look at it two different ways and, and see different things things in it. Um, the, it has, over time, been credited uh, to Barnabas for writing, to Luke, to Silvanus, Philip, Clement, Martin Luther. He ascribed it to Apollos of Alexandria. I, I read one author that I found rather interesting. He believed that it was actually Paul who wrote it. Luke took it and edited it and changed some things and, uh, because there's some grammatical style and usages that are similar to the book of Acts that Paul wrote. So anyway, all that to say this, I, as I said at the beginning, I hold to Paul being the author. Okay? You say, why? I always like to have evidence for when I say this is what I hold to believe, even if I can't say it concretely. Number one, I believe that we'll see in Hebrews that Paul likely wrote the book because of this. Number one, his passion for the Jews. Okay? His passion for the Jews. Um, in Romans, you remember what he wrote? 
He said, I, I would be accursed so that the nation of Israel could be saved. He said, I, I, I would be anathema. I'll give up my salvation if they can just be saved, knowing, and he certainly knew, that could not be possible. But throughout the New Testament, what do we see? We see a man who has a great passion for Jews. He wanted to see the nation of Israel saved, restored, and come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I, I think there's something to be said for that because this book is all about restoring Jews. Helping Jews who are saved, helping those who are unsaved, uh, but intellectually convinced. Helping Jews who, who don't even want to accept Jesus Christ as a good man, let alone the Messiah. And so this book is written that way. Number two, it is also, we see his practice of convincing the Jews of Christ in salvation. Okay? His practice of convincing the Jews. I mean, his books are written in such a convincing manner. He always likes to reason with Jews and convince them of who Christ is, salvation. Just look at the, the book of Romans. He does that in that, even though it's written to the church at Rome and, and such. He still enters in things, brings things in to try to convince the Jew. To try to say, hey, Jew, you need to listen to this because here's the truth. You know what also we know about Paul? What was his propensity to do when he entered a city? He would go in a synagogue. It's one of the first places he would go. And he would start preaching and teaching and reasoning and logic and, and using logic to convince the Jews of who Jesus Christ was. It was, it was his passion. It was his desire is what uh, we see play out. Um, I think this is one of the key ones for me here. His presentation of the just shall live by faith. His presentation of the just shall live by faith. Paul was the one who started the teaching of this truth in Romans. And in Romans, you remember, when he brought up the just shall live by faith, the focus was on what? Who is the just? So that was the focus. We come to the book of Galatians, and who wrote the book of Galatians? Paul did. And he focuses again on what? The just shall live by faith. And in Galatians, it was focusing on what? The living, the living of the just. They shall live by this way, and, and not by you know, Judaism, not by... No, the, here's how the just live. And now we come to Hebrews. And what do we find again? The third part of it, the just shall live by faith. And what is the focus here in Hebrews? The faith aspect. We get to the hall of faith. We get to the reality of faith being lived out, and what faith is, and faith in God, and faith in Jesus Christ. And so, man, I find it hard to believe that God will allow Paul to begin it, give the second installment, and then, oh, I want somebody else to finish it up. I think it shows a good correlation and a clear uh, continuation of that reality, okay? And uh, you see that. So here's the question, and it begs, uh, too, in that sense, okay? Um, uh, well, let me back up. Okay, one other one here. Number four. Is that off on the bottom? It changed my thoughts. Okay, number four is simply this, okay? His preaching style when addressing the Jews. His preaching style when addressing the Jews. His preaching style when addressing the Jews. You know what's interesting? In Acts chapter 13, we have recorded for us in the latter part of that chapter, Acts chapter 13, a message he preached um, at the synagogue in Antioch. You know what he does there? He relates the history. He relates the, the promises and the hopes of Israel. He contrasts it with the coming of Jesus Christ and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay? He, he, he contrasts that in a unique way, in a kind of a, a special way that he, he kind of puts it, uh, uh, he presents it in this contrasting manner. Okay? What's interesting, that parallels tremendously the book of Hebrews. In fact, some people believe that what the message that he preached in Acts 13 is the basis for this letter that was written later. 
That he took some of those things he alludes to in Acts chapter 13, written and presented in much the same manner as this letter, and then he in turn then now writes this large letter to Jews everywhere, not just the synagogue in Antioch. And I think there's great evidence towards that end. Okay, so here's the question. Why not sign the letter? See, Paul signed other letters. Why not? Why wouldn't he have signed this one? And again, this is somewhat conjecture. It is possible we know that the Jews already hated him tremendously, right? Okay, the Jews hated him. He's already persecuted. And so maybe he didn't want to draw more unnecessary attention and persecution because this one deals a heavy blow to Judaism. So possibly, maybe. However, I think it may have been a different reason. I think he was keeping in line with what the focus of the book is all about. This book isn't about Paul. It is about Jesus Christ. The superiority, supremacy of Jesus Christ. So I think, again, this is my conjecture, my belief through my study in that Paul wrote it. And Paul got to the end and said, you know what? We're just going to let this come from God. His word about who Christ is in his preeminence over everything. Next week, we'll get into the next aspect here, and we'll dig in a little bit more. And I am excited. I hope you'll get excited too. Hey, I'm not joking. It may be fun if you want to read Leviticus in preparation for it. And uh, it would do us good to kind of glance through it and read through it, become familiar with some of the things that we'll be talking about here in Hebrews. Fantastic book. I'm looking forward to it as we get into the weeks ahead. Brother Cliff, you'll bring those prayer requests.